Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, through chapter 5, verse 2. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not do sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing, rather than labor and work honestly with their own hands. So as to have something to share with the needy, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you are marked with the seal for the day of redemption, but put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and live in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, Rose. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody who has had a part in today's service. I can feel the fall coming on. There's more of you here. I like that. And uh, college students will be coming along before too long. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of here at OKC First is that we do good. We do well where backdrops are concerned. Uh, if you've ever been here on a Sunday where we're about to have vacation Bible school, you know that we kind of go all out for a backdrop. Or for a kids' musical, we go all out for a backdrop. And, I, and this is really important for the entirety of the sermon today. A backdrop gives you some sense of what's coming. A backdrop gives you some idea of context. And backdrop and context working together give you lenses of interpretation that help you to know how to receive the words that are coming at you, but also they set your expectations and perhaps even develop in you some sense of anticipation. This is what backdrops do. They give you some way of, of hearing and responding to the words. Like if I were to yell and point duck, right? If I yell and point this word duck, and our backdrop is Martin Nature Park, and we are both carrying cameras, you might, oh, well, that's interesting. How about if I get my camera, and I go over here, and I, I take a picture of this beautiful mallard here, right? So that would kind of make sense. If I yell duck at Martin Nature Park, you probably think there's going to be a duck, right? If, however, we are playing dodgeball, and we find ourselves in a place where they're not using <laughs> dodgeballs, but they are using wrenches, Say it with me, folks, because if you can dodge a wrench, there you go. All right, so some of you, that's a movie. That's a movie reference. But if we are playing dodgeball and you hear me say duck and they're playing with wrenches, 
and not necessarily dodgeballs. What you're going to do at that point is you're not going to slowly find your camera and say, well, let me take a picture of what's happening here. You're going to kind of hit the ground because you don't want to get hit by the rich, much less dodgeball. So backdrops are important. If I say to you, it's time to eat, and our backdrop is a, is a well-lit, warm home, and there is all kinds of stuff on the table. It's going to fill you with good feelings, and you will receive those words and respond to those words in certain sorts of ways. But if you're in the bottom of a lion's den, and I say it's time to eat, then that develops within you some sense of anxiety. You kind of know how to feel those words, right? How about this one? This has been a part of what we've been talking about this entire time here in the book of Ephesians. The end of all things. The end of all things. Now, if you are in a movie theater and you are watching a movie about a cataclysmic weather event, right, that's going to result in a flood so big it's going to topple the Statue of Liberty, then when you hear this phraseology of the end of all things, you have in mind a, a cataclysmic situation that might end existence as we know it. Perhaps it's a flood. Perhaps it's a war, perhaps it's some sort of space event that visits the earth, right? But Paul has been trying to say throughout the book of Ephesians something about the end of all things. And rather than the earth being flooded with water that topples giant statues and, and actually ruins so much of the earth, we're talking about, if you remember, the flood of God's presence. That kind of like a flood with water will touch everything, and reorganize everything. We're talking about something that is not bad news, but we're talking about good, 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 and great news. Like in the book of Revelation, when Paul talks about the end of all things, Paul is talking about something that has already started in the death and the resurrection of Christ. The death and the resurrection of Christ, and we've said this already in this series, is sort of the first step in the finishing move by which God will remarry heaven and earth, and the earth will be just flooded with the presence of God in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of great ways. So whereas we might hear the phrase, the end of all things, if you're in that movie theater, you might have a sense of dread, and it might be something like, we might not make it. But in the book of Revelation, when we have this language of the end of all things, whereas we said in this first slide over here, because it's a cataclysmic weather event, we might not make it. In the second one, we say, we are going to make it. <laughs> we are going to make it into this eternity that is absolutely flooded, flooded with the presence of God. That is the backdrop against which you are to hear all of that Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians. Hear this, hear this. What Paul is saying is something really good and big is coming and it's already started. Here's the language that we used, if you'll remember, all the way back to chapter one in the book of Ephesians. There is a giant flood of the presence of God that is going to cover all of the earth and cover all of the existence. It's gonna cover everything and it's gonna change everything for the better. There is going to be this giant flood, it is going to happen, and remember, it's already raining somewhere. It's already raining somewhere. That is the largest backdrop that Paul is trying to paint, not only for the church there in Ephesus, but also for us. Now, there's another part of this backdrop. If you take a little bit of a step back, you start to see that there is some clarification to this backdrop. Because in addition to saying this is the big thing that God is going to do, in addition to saying that, here's the other thing, super important, I hope you're ready for this. Paul seems to be saying, 
And God is going to do that through the body of Christ, God's people, the church, just like the ones in Ephesus and the one at 4400 Northwest Expressway. So this giant thing that God is about to do, flood the entire existence with the presence of God, to remarry heaven and earth, God is going to do through the people of God, through the church. Okay, it's good. There is a really important thing that happens when we come together here, and I am not sure that we deeply appreciate it yet. The story that we're a part of is bigger than I think any of us, me included, actually appreciate. We aren't just gathering to do behavior modification training. We aren't just gathering, again, to salve your guilty conscience. It's okay if your behavior is changed, and it's okay if your conscience is cleansed. All of those things are okay, but that is not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to gather and to rehearse the dance steps, the dance steps that we'll need to dance with God as we help to usher in this new era of life and hope and future and eternity. And that's where I need the people of God to say, I guess I need to ask us this question. What is the backdrop, the most important backdrop against which you are living your life? What is the backdrop that gives your life some sense of meaning, that shapes your expectations? What is the story that you are living out? In his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, Donald Miller, and we had him here actually when he was pumping and pushing this book, he was doing a tour and he actually stopped here and spoke. And I will never forget some of the stories he told that night. He told one story in particular about a young woman, a teenage girl who was in his orbit because this girl's father was one of his best friends. And this guy was wildly successful in, in the financial world, wildly successful. So successful that this young lady had everything she'd ever needed and wanted. Now he said this in the midst of this presentation that night. He said, people will, and especially young people will, gravitate toward the stories that they find most interesting. All right, that might be a good one to write down, so think about this one again. People will, and especially young people will, gravitate toward the stories that they find most interesting. This young lady had everything she'd ever needed, everything she'd ever wanted, and so much so that it was no longer an interesting life. The life that she found more interesting was one that carried her into what we would call in the business at-risk behavior. <laughs> she was in trouble a lot. She was in trouble all the time. And her dad, Donald Miller's friend, was starting to despair. So Donna Miller said to him, well, that life is more interesting to her than the one that you have provided for her and handed to her, gift-wrapped for her. You need to do something that makes for a more interesting life. They met again the next week, and the man announced to Donald Miller, okay, well, I bought, <laughs> I bought this whole adoption center in Mexico. I bought an orphanage in Mexico. Donald Miller said, oh, that's, that's a little over the top, okay. <laughs> What's going to happen now? He says, well, I told my teenage daughter that she needed to help us to administrate it and run it and raise money for it. And here's the thing. That life was indeed more interesting than the one that she had been gift-wrapped, and she changed because of that better story and that better backdrop. Matter of fact, 
The entire family ended up moving to that orphanage. He turned his back on all kinds of profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, and they went down there and they all lived the most interesting lives that they could because the backdrop is all important. Against what kind of backdrop are you living your life? Against what backdrop are we living our lives? I'm going to step on a couple of toes, and I'm, I'm sorry ahead of time. You know I love you. Sometimes I can tell that when somebody else is providing your ultimate backdrop, when I can say something that it comes directly out of Scripture, when I can use the terminology of social and then justice, but someone will come to me and say, that is a communist term. No, it's not. It's a biblical term. I wonder, who's painting your backdrop? Justice. Justice. Oh, my goodness. Few words are more scriptural than this word justice. Few concepts are more scriptural than this concept of social justice. <laughs> so if you come to me and you say, hey, that's a communist term, it tells me a little bit about who's painting your backdrop. We have a better story to live out against a better backdrop. I don't really like to do premarital counseling because I don't feel like I'm that good at it, but I have done some here recently that I've really, really enjoyed. Uh, actually, we have folks in the room who are a whole lot better at it than I am. Uh, if you need premarital counseling, Jordan Hepler and Bonnie Goodwin are your people, and if they can't do it, I'm happy to do it, but they're just better at it than I am. But first session, I asked this question, does God want you to get married? What does this marriage do for God? Does God care whether or not you get married? And, and the answer is typically is yes, yes, yes. God cares whether or not we get married. Why? Why does God carry, care whether or not you get married? Answers aren't always strong. I don't really blame them. I kind of blame myself in that moment. Maybe we have not painted the backdrop against which all of life happens, including marriage. Maybe we haven't done well enough to paint that backdrop so that these people, when they sit across from the pastor and hear this really troubling question, why does God want you to get married? Maybe I'm the reason that they don't have a better answer. There are some really good answers, actually. There are some really good answers. There are some really necessary answers. What I need to make sure in the course of premarital counseling is this. I need to make sure that this marriage is happening against a larger backdrop that is what God is doing in all of the world. What God is doing in all of creation. What God is doing in the victory of the resurrection. Marriage needs to take place against that backdrop because if that marriage is somehow the center of that couple's universe, that marriage is already in trouble. In fact, I would say this. Again, circling back to something I said earlier, I am not sure that we fully appreciate how important it is that we do this, that we are the church, that we continue to rehearse these stories that become this giant backdrop against which we live all of our lives. I mean, I'm hinting at it every time I say something to you about your vocations. When I say to you, hey, it's great and all, 
that you work in the medical field, but if you are a doctor that happens to be a Christian, that's not quite the backdrop we're after. If you're in the financial world, if you're in the business world, if you're in the legal world, if you're in the educational world, if you're in the ministry world, and you understand yourself to be a minister, an attorney, a doctor, a teacher that happens to be a Christian, then you have a backdrop problem. Because we are doing all that we're doing in the field of education, the arts, business and production, ministry. We're doing all that we're doing against this larger backdrop of what it is that God wants to do and we're doing it as the people of God, the God-chosen partners in this giant project. So Paul is saying to his people in Ephesus and Paul is saying to his people in Oklahoma City, hey, this is important. What we're doing here is important. The story that we are continuing by being here is important. The backdrop against which we live our lives as a group, but also as individuals, super important. And without that backdrop, we are likely to not do it correctly. So, Paul is saying to this church, listen, everything you do needs to be filtered through this particular lens of what it is that God's trying to do and what it is that God's trying to do through God's people, the body of Christ, the church. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You were taught... You were told that God is doing a giant thing, and God is doing this giant thing in and through God's people, the church. Make sense? And now to the verses that Rose read so well. So, since what we're doing here is super important, you need to work on these connections. The, let's see, is this west or east? This is east. The east siders with the west siders. You need to work on these connections, the people on your row. You need to work on the connections with people in your Sunday school classes. By the way, you need to be in a Sunday school class or small group. You need to be known and fully known as a part of what we're trying to do as the church, the body of Christ. You need that. You may not think that you need it, but you need it. And if you don't believe it, have a heart attack. Oh, yeah. And then see, as your church comes and circles around you and helps you, or helps your family. Maybe it's a family member that has a heart attack. Maybe it's a job loss. And all of these things, all these things that I just mentioned are current stories in your church. Classes and groups surrounding people in harm's way. Why? Because church is the church and the means whereby God moves around in the world. And so since that's the case, can we stop lying to one another? Can we put away all falsehood? And let's speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. You can't really understand this part of the book of Ephesians. You can't really understand the book of Ephesians. You can't understand a lot of what happens in Scripture if you hear it individualistically as opposed to corporately. What he's saying here is not, hey, stop lying because liars are bad people. What he's saying here is stop lying 
because it is a matter of body health. It's a matter of body health. And if we're going to be a strong body of Christ, we cannot be a strong body of Christ if we are practicing falsehood. My pastor told me, and I believe it, that the number one most important component in Christian community is honesty. Wait a minute, I thought it was love. How do I know if you're really telling me the truth when you tell me you love me if I don't think you're honest? It's honesty. It's honesty. Thieves must give up stealing. Why? Because it's wrong to steal? Well, of course it's wrong to steal. But that's not what's said here. In fact, sometimes I think when we hear Scripture individualistically, again, this is how I would, I would characterize that, when it's against the wrong backdrop, sometimes people's Christian backdrops are just personal development. It's not the larger thing that God is doing through us. It's not the larger thing that God is doing. It's just, how can I be better and improve my resume so I won't be left behind when God comes? That's not what you have here. In fact, I would submit there are better resources for growth toward Christ's likeness when we hear these things corporately. Thieves, stop stealing. Instead, live a more interesting story. Labor, work honestly with your own hands. Why? Because we have a mission and a calling and you are part of it. But it's not just thievery. It's also how we talk to one another. This is that passage of scripture where you hear it said, listen, be careful what comes out of your mouth. Only let slip out of your mouth what is helpful for building the body. Yeah, but you just told me to tell the truth, so I have to tell somebody when they are dangerously wrong about something, right? What if we were to live by that mantra of telling the truth for sure, but then speaking what was helpful for building one another up, strengthening this body? I'm not saying that you don't disagree. I'm not going to surprise you, right? I'm saying that you disagree Christianly. And not just when you're here face to face, but when you go to that God-forsaken place known as, and you all know it, Facebook. Maybe it's not God-forsaken. It seems like it sometimes. But when you go to Facebook, or, or when you are having discussions, we'll call them private with somebody else, if in those moments you are a functioning, healthy member of the body of Christ, even in those moments you are guarding your mouth as it has to do with the other person on the other side of the room. Why? Why? Why guard our speech? Why be so careful with all of our conversations? Why? Is it because God's going to be upset with us if we aren't doing it like that? Well, no, it's because we're trying to do a good thing here together. We're trying to do a big thing here together. And in order to do the big thing that God has for us to do here together, A, you need to be involved, but B, you need to be involved and productive. And you'd be, and C, you need to be involved and productive, and you need to do it Christianly. Our church is stronger 
when we're Christian, not just when we're here, but every other minute of the day. Our church is stronger when you're Christian at work. Our church. Our church is stronger when you do business as a Christian. Our church is stronger when you disagree at home, Christianly. We're stronger when you're Christian all the time and not just when the lights are on. Therefore, remember, we're the body of Christ. So this seems like a tall order, right? (laughs) It doesn't say here, hey, just behave, stay within the lines. It says here, body of Christ, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. As beloved children and live in love. And now he's even going to qualify that love. What kind of love? Well, the love that we see demonstrated most clearly in the cross. I would remind you again that the cross is not some sort of tangible symbol for us every week of how angry God gets at sin and sinners. That's somebody else's story. It's not ours. But the cross is for us every week. That one and that one, every other cross you see, it is for us a tangible expression of how far love will go to make love's point. And we are to, every day, including this day, but every day, we are to live out and put skin and flesh on that love, the love of Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Doing a lot of premarital counseling, actually, so I've got a little bit of this on the brain right now. Maybe, I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there, maybe we have something that we could learn from folks in the Orthodox tradition. In fact, talked not too long ago with a young couple about the possibility that some of this might actually take residence in their own ceremony. Here's what they do in the Orthodox tradition. The entire wedding starts, and I'll kind of personalize it for us, starts out in the atrium. We all are gathering in the atrium. (laughs) We gather in the atrium, and the minister approaches. We're all standing, no seats. We're all standing, and we're standing close enough to the bride and the groom to hear what it is that the priest is going to say to the prospective bride and groom. To the groom, the priest says, have you, and it's going to be Nicholas and Elizabeth getting married, have you, Nicholas, a good, free, and unconstrained will and a firm intention to take unto yourself to wife this woman, Elizabeth, whom you see before you? And to the bride, have you, Elizabeth, a good, free, and unconstrained will and a firm intention to take unto yourself to husband this man, Nicholas, whom you see before you? Each in turn replies, I have And these are the only words they will speak in the entire ceremony. That's interesting, isn't it? Wait. Wait, wait, wait. When do the bride and groom get to take center stage and talk about all the things that they want to say? So, the service of betrothal, once that's completed then the entire church 
The entire church gathers around the prospective bride and groom, and they walk in, and they fill all the seats in the sanctuary, and the bride and groom come down front, and then they have a full-out, unapologetic service of worship in which, I'm not angling to preach more. There are probably other people. I'll have Dr. Green do all these preaching, all this preaching, all the weddings like this, in which there's a full-throated retelling of the gospel story the timeline of the gospel story so that you can situate this marriage within the larger thing that God is doing. And then there are prayers, prayers of gratitude for all of the other people who have given this marriage context, who have helped to demonstrate what this love looks like. It's long, long season of prayer so that we can situate this marriage against a larger backdrop of what God is doing, not just in the entire world, but also through these people of faith. And then at the very end, after all of this, they take communion. And the communion moment is understood as something of a wedding feast. But love is first of all defined and described by broken body and shed blood. And then they go home. Now, I'm not against vows. I'm not. I'm not against vows. I'm not even against vows that the bride and groom would write on their own. I give them some direction. Make sure if you're going to write your vows that you include something that sounds kind of like better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness, and health because we just need to know that you're going to promise these things. I'm not against all of that. I do want the bride and the groom to know that the voice that will make more impact in the success or failure of their marriage, I do want the bride and groom to know that their marriage is going to take place against a larger backdrop. I do want the bride and the groom to know that what God says is more important than what they will say to one another, even when their own marriage is concerned. I'm, I'm going to say that one again because I really thought there would be more amens than that, so I'm, I'm going to assume it's a microphone. Turn this up just a little bit. I do want the... I was just kidding about turning it up. I do want the bride and the groom to know that while they may say beautiful things to one another, and let's support that, the more important life-giving things that will have more to do with the sustainability of this marriage, the more important voices and the more important words, the, more important vo the most important voice will be the voice of God. And then there is this service of crowning. Now that's interesting. Service of betrothal and then a service of crowning. Why would you give these people crowns? They're going to think they're kings and queens. <laughs> well, they are in the kingdom that defines power in interesting ways, that understands and interprets those crowns in very interesting ways. They are not so much marked as royalty in a human sense, but they are with these crowns identified with the martyrs of the church who are understood throughout Scripture as royalty in heavenly sorts of terms. In other words, with these crowns, and perhaps they'll always be on display in this household, with these crowns, 
point is made. We will love as we've been loved. We will love and sacrifice of others, as others around us and before us have loved and sacrificed. God will shape our love. Our love will not shape God. In other words, these Orthodox folks, as far as I can tell, insist that marriage be played out against a larger, better backdrop of what it is that God is doing in the world and what it is that God is doing in the world through God's people. In other words, that's where marriage should live. So when the pastor asks the question, why does God care? Why should you get marriage? Here's the answer. Because, pastor, we will be the tiniest little church, <laughs> our household, We'll be a tiny church planted to be the church, and we will, with our last breath, do what God wants done in the world with God's help. Oh. Which means, then, that every time we come to the table, it should be for so many of us time to renew vows whether you're married or not. Time to renew vows to this God who loved first and moved first. Time to renew vows so that we can continue to practice and rehearse and practice being alive against this larger backdrop of what it is that God is doing in the world and what it is that God is doing through God's people in the world. So if you're helping us, come on down and help us to organize this table. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. And with them, Lord, remind us that there is no better backdrop for our lives than that one that you have already supplied us. The larger thing that you are doing that we have seen in the death and the resurrection of your Son. Remind us, Lord, that everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we are is played out against this larger backdrop. Help us to see how it is that that same backdrop and larger story gives context to everything that we would think, everything that we would decide. Help us to see how it is, God, that each week when we come to this place, help us to see how it is that we are doing a deeply, deeply important thing. And grow us as your people. Grow us to be more and more aware of what it is you're trying to do in all of creation and show us how you have been so willing to use us in the same process. Convert us, God. Move us from the wrong backdrop to the right one. Give us the right story to find ourselves in. May we find meaning and purpose and all the best definitions to all the best words in this better story that you have provided for us. And may we understand that as conversion and even salvation. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pews to the left, and to come forward with your hands cupped to receive the broken body and the shed blood, these tangible elements meant to remind you 
of who we are and why we are who we are and what we do. As you approach the person holding the bread, a little piece will be snapped off and pushed into your hands. Don't eat it just yet, but listen as that person says, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Then take and dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat, and then I hope you will find a place to pray, a very fervent prayer. Yes, for these kids who are going through these moments of transition, but also a very fervent prayer about what backdrop you are living your life against. Perhaps in those moments, you'll hear the God of the universe offer to swap stories for you, to give you a better story, a better backdrop. I hope you'll take that opportunity to pray that prayer. Perhaps you will, after taking the Lord's Supper, you will want to find your way to this bowl here where we have a little bit of water meant to help you remember your moment of baptism when you were in every official sort of way included into this story and into this people who have a very specific purpose. Just dipping your fingers into this water perhaps will jog your memory and you'll remember not only when you were baptized but the ramifications of being baptized. If you can't come to us, looks like Jason and Berkeley will be coming to you today. Who is welcome at this table? All of you who understand your need for grace. And if today you suspect that you might be living against the wrong backdrop, you might be living somebody else's story, you are most welcome at this table. And maybe this table will be one of the means whereby Christ can convert you from one backdrop to another, one story to another. If you come to one of these side padded altars, someone will meet you there to pray a prayer for healing. If you come to one of these kneeling benches up front, we won't assume a thing, but we will pray with you and touch you on the back or neck or shoulder to let you know that you are not alone. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, Remember, remember me. Later on, he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, remember me. All across the sanctuary now, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. Exit your pew to the left and come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God for the people of God.